Amen. In this passage today, Jesus talks about being in the Father's house. And uh, we know in the Gospel of John, the last time that Jesus mentioned the Father's house was in John 2 as he was cleansing the temple. As we start this morning, I'm reminded of the prayer of King David. Would you pray with me? One thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Lord Jesus, we learn in the gospel that your body has become the new temple of the Lord and you make room for us. We pray that you would dwell in our midst richly this morning as we gather in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I want to begin with a question to all married couples. Think back for a moment to the season where you initially got engaged. Uh, After the betrothal, what kind of preparations did you make before you were finally able to get married? When Carissa and I got engaged uh, in February 2004, even though we had been dating for almost four years, we still had a lot that we needed to accomplish before we got to our wedding date in mid-December. For example, I had to graduate from college and begin my new job. She needed to finish her associate's degree and transfer to FSU. We both had to move back into our parents' homes for a time so that we could begin saving money. We had to scout out a place that we were going to live once we got married and moved to Tallahassee. And along the way, we had a wedding to plan. Now, while these were very exciting times for us, uh, none of it was very out of the ordinary. Every culture has its own practices and customs when it comes to preparing for marriage. And it was no different in Jesus' day. In ancient Israel, once a couple was formally engaged, it was common practice for the bridegroom to go away for a while before the wedding and to make preparations for a new dwelling place. In fact, I want to show you a picture of what a first century Jewish home would have looked like. If you could get that on the screen. You can see the structure and uh, the courtyard And then the next picture uh, has some archaeological remains from uh, first century Israel. Now, in those days, it was common for sons to work in the same business, the same profession as their fathers, and for fathers to eventually pass along their homes to their sons. So the normal custom after a Jewish betrothal was for the bridegroom to go back to his father's house and begin constructing a new room preparing a place for he and his future bride to live in. This was usually done by adding a room onto the existing structure of the father's house, or perhaps dividing the largest room with a wall, creating a kind of first century apartment for he and his new bride, so that he could take her to himself. Now, what does this have to do with our passage today? I'm glad you asked. Would you turn with me to John 14? I think it's, I I can't remember the exact number. Is it page 900? Maybe somebody could shout it out. 901. All right. This morning, we're going to focus on Jesus as bridegroom, Jesus as the way, 
and Jesus as the revealer of the Father. So in our gospel lesson, the Lord Jesus speaks to the burdened hearts of his apostles. By the end of John 13, they had just learned that Jesus was going to leave them. That where he was going, they cannot follow, John 13, 36, at least not right away. And this must have disturbed them deeply. But then in the midst of that, they also learned that one among their number would betray Jesus and that Peter, the leading figure among the apostles, would deny him three times. This is a pretty heavy newsreel for Jesus to drop on them all at once. But as we come to the next text from John 14, we see Jesus' shepherd heart, his pastor's heart, really come out, right? He begins to speak words of assurance to them. There's a real tone change here in the text. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Perhaps not surprisingly, these are the Bible verses most often quoted at funerals. In fact, I just led one yesterday and use this very text. Here Jesus seeks to redirect the focus of his apostles from their own subjective emotions, from their own experience of sorrow, onto the objective reality of the Father and the Son. Amen? But that's not all. I hope by now you can spot a deeper theme at work in this text, because this Jewish betrothal imagery undergirds all the words of Christ. He is the heavenly bridegroom. Having come to earth in love to secure the affections of his bride, the church, he goes away to the Father's house to prepare a place for us, for all of us who name the name of Jesus. But we mustn't get discouraged or lose heart while we wait for his return, for he will come again and take us to himself, that where he is, there we may be also. In other words, the promises of John 14 are not merely words of comfort for his grieving apostles at the time. They are words of reassurance to his entire bride, even in our time, as we patiently await the return of the bridegroom. What glorious treasures are laid up for us in the word of God. Amen? What beautiful images of consolation. I wonder if there's someone here this morning, someone who's grown weary of the waiting, weary of the already and not yet of our present world. And you just need to hear the bridegroom say to your soul, I will indeed come again and take you to myself. Maybe you've grown weary of waiting for earthly marriage. And you need to hear him assure you that in a deeper sense you're already spoken for. Maybe you've grown weary of wars in the Middle East, the seemingly never-ending debasement of innocent lives on both sides. 
Maybe you're burdened that in the midst of the latest news cycle, there are wars going on in other parts of the world that no one seems concerned about anymore. Maybe you're just depressed and buried underneath this inexplicable melancholy, this fear that no one really knows you, the real you, and no one really loves you, the real you. And into this fallen milieu, the God of heaven condescends to one knee, so to speak. And he makes his marriage proposal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or as the great Christmas hymn puts it, long lay the world in sin and error pining. We're still living in that time, aren't we? Until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Now, none of this should have been that surprising to the people of Israel. For God had used this same bridal imagery again and again and again in the Hebrew scriptures. Indeed, it's possible that Jesus had Isaiah 54 verses 5 through 8 directly in mind. Let me read them for you. He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted. And grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, promises to gather us to himself. The image is one of eternal union with Christ, the bridegroom. And the second image of this passage is of Jesus as the way. And it's also an image of union, as we will see. Someone in my Bible study this week asked whether the words of Christ in John 14 apply to the future or the present? And the answer is yes. We've seen how it applies to the future through the second coming of the bridegroom that he promises. Not only that, the language of God's house and the many rooms was used in Jewish sources at that time to refer to God's heavenly dwelling, which is also what Jesus seems to have in mind here. But there's also a sense of present reality in this image of the Father's house. Interestingly, the Greek word for rooms, mone, uh, it, it, this word is directly related to the verb, verb abide that we see right in the next chapter, which is meno. It looms very large in John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide, meno, in me, and I in you. So, so both images here, the house in John 14 and the vine in John 15 involve dwelling or abiding. And there's this connection between our union with Christ in the present, our abiding, meno, 
in him and the rooms, Mone, set aside for us in the Father's house in the future. So the central idea in this passage, it's not just simply about mansions in the sky by and by, it's about our spiritual position in Christ. As Raymond Brown puts it, his body is the Father's house. In other words, if we want to dwell in the Father's house in the future, we need to dwell in Christ in the present by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the idea behind his mysterious dialogue with Thomas in verses 4 to 6. If you look there with me, Jesus said, And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here Jesus is declaring himself to be, in the words of the Bible scholar Rod Whitaker, the agent of their future access to the presence of God. True, Jesus is leaving them in a bodily sense, but he's leaving them in order that his relationship with us might continue on a higher plane. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I ever read this passage, I remember being pretty offended by this, no one comes to the Father except through me business. Uh, Jesus, you're the only way to the Father. You're the only way to heaven. It just seemed too narrow to me, too exclusive. When I was a freshman in college, I remember just having this eager desire that all religions are essentially the same. And I even put that notion to the test. So uh, not, not only was I reading the Bible for the first time, I was also reading the Quran and some of the principal texts of Hinduism. I visited the local synagogue a few times. I took some classes in Eastern philosophy. I even tried Zen med meditation. And I, I certainly found like some degree of overlap between the teachings of the various world religions. But friends, I also found a lot of contradictions. Ways that they were simply incompatible from a metaphysical and from a moral perspective. And when I was honest with myself and prayed to God, who I did believe in, I had to admit that there was no other figure in all these world religions quite like Jesus Christ. Jesus just had this luminous, quality. Wherever there was overlap with Jesus and these other faiths, then it felt like we were on safe ground. But a departure from him seemed like a departure from the path and a venture into selfishness or superstition or falsehood. And there's a reason for this, friends, because Jesus is the path. Jesus is the way. The trouble with this whole all roads lead to the same path kind of thinking is that it doesn't actually work. Because as N.T. Wright puts it, if you dethrone Jesus, you enthrone something else or someone else instead. Amen. And I would only add that in the modern West, the one who usually gets enthroned is not some golden idol with six arms and a nasty expression, but rather we enthrone ourselves and our nasty expression and our own sensibilities or perhaps the spirit of the age. 
Now, I want to quote from N.T. Wright at length because he's so helpful on this point, and his words summarize my experience so accurately. He says, the belief that all religions are really the same sounds nice and democratic, though the study of religions quickly shows that it isn't true. What you are really saying is that reality, God, the divine, is remote and unknowable, and that neither Jesus, nor Buddha, nor Moses, nor Krishna gives us direct access to it. They all provide a way toward the foothills of the mountain, not the way to the summit. Wright continues, warning us that it isn't just John's gospel that you lose if you embrace this idea. The whole New Testament, the whole of early Christianity insists that the one true living God, the creator, is the God of Israel. And that the God of Israel has acted decisively in history to address and rescue the world. And he concludes the idea of a vague general truth to which all religions bear some kind of unique witness is foreign to Christianity. Now, someone might respond by asking, okay, so Jesus is the way. But isn't it possible that someone might find the real Jesus through one of these other paths or through philosophy or on their own personal experience or a dream, even if they don't know his name or have never read about him in the Bible? And I think most Christians, most theologians down through the ages would say it's possible. Uh, St. Justin Martyr, for example, thought that Socrates was a kind of proto-Christian because the eternal word existed at that time and had somehow revealed himself to Socrates. I'm not so sure about that. But because the issue of salvation is so important, we never want to just simply roll the dice or leave it by chance, right? Peter Kraft gives this analogy. He says, we don't know with absolute certainty when a human life is given a soul. But he says, since life, since human life is so precious, created in the image of God, and murder is so serious, our lack of knowledge should cause us to be more serious, not less serious, about protecting human life from the moment of conception. Likewise, our uncertainty of people encountering the true Jesus through some other mean or dreams or, or something else should cause us to be all the more serious about actually sharing the gospel and not just rolling the dice. Amen? Do you have a family member or a close friend or a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? I'll bet you do. Brothers and sisters, let us not leave it to chance. Ask them to meet you for coffee. Find out what they believe. Be curious. Ask questions. Ask them if you can share with them a couple of your favorite stories from the Gospels. Don't be ashamed to share your own testimony about how Jesus has changed your life. Nobody can challenge your own story. Give them a warm invitation to church, or if, if you find out that's a step too far, start by introducing them to some of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe invite them all over for dinner or for a cookout. Ask if you can pray for them. Maybe even pray for them on the spot. But let's not leave this to chance. For no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. 
And we are all called to be agents of the Great Commission. This is not something that John and I have been commissioned to do on your behalf. Do you understand this? You are a holy people, a royal priesthood. God wishes to make his appeal through you to the world. You are ambassadors of Christ. And at the heart of this matter, friends, is love. Not notches on our evangelistic belt. It's the love of God that we want our loved ones to know, even our enemies for that matter, to experience for themselves. And through Jesus, they can. They can, just like you have. Our Old Testament reading today speaks of the way of the Lord in terms of walking in his commandments and thereby imitating his way. But as we saw last week, Jesus introduces a radical new thread into the conversation saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. So he is in his own divine person, the way. He is the way. Here we see that Jesus in his own person defines what love is just as Jesus in his own person, incarnates who God is. Now, all of this evangelism talk might sound scary to you, but friends, listen, the secret sauce of evangelism is Jesus, not you. The same luminous, self-authenticating quality, self quality you saw in him, they can see that too. If God gives them grace, is drawing them to himself, you need to proclaim this Jesus. And that's our third point, that Jesus reveals the Father. In the haunting opening line to his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And here Tozer isn't necessarily talking about like what we would say we believe about God or like the creed that we would sign off on. He's saying that we often come to God with our own sort of fill in the gaps notions of who he is and they're actually often wrong being based on our worst fears or perhaps our own broken notions of an earthly father. I remember one time I met this missionary couple. They had served in Mexico for about 30 years and this woman came to this point of depression, came to the point of suicide because she said she had been spending her whole time on the mission field trying to appease her parents who she felt were, were like these never satisfied judges. And she said she actually put that on God. She viewed God as just this never satisfied cosmic judge. Now, how could she think that? She knew the Bible frontwards to backwards. She was teaching it to others because she needed to have Jesus revealed to her who the Father is. The Father is not like the God of our fears. In fact, he's like Jesus. Looking back at our text here in John 14, 7, Jesus declares to his apostles, from now on you do know him and have seen him. In other words, the word made flesh came to earth to fill the gaps. If we want to know what God is like, there's nothing more helpful to point to than Jesus. 
As Whitaker puts it, Jesus does not simply represent the Father, he presents the Father. He's the one, he's the way. And here he presents himself once again as the great I am who was revealed to Moses. And as shocking as such a claim may be, this peasant from Nazareth is the image of the invisible God. To this, his confused disciple Philip responds in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, Have I been with you for so long and you still do not know me, Philip? You just picture all the hair standing up on the arms of the apostles. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Friends, in Jesus Christ, the veil is finally lifted. In Philip's request, just show us the Father. I think we hear uh, an echo of the audacious request of Moses. Remember when he's on the mountain with the Lord and he says to the Lord, show me your glory. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, if you're like me, you got to be thinking like, really, Jesus? Like when you were washing the disciples' dirty feet, you were showing us the Father? And the simple answer is yes. But when you allowed yourself to be nursing at a woman's breast and made yourself dependent upon your own creature, what about when you were laid in a feeding trough for animals? And the word made flesh responds, even then. But what about when you allowed yourself to be betrayed with a kiss, to be mocked and scourged? What about when you hung naked and bleeding on a Roman cross? Surely then you were not revealing the Father. And Jesus answers in the Gospel of John, especially then. Here in his Passion Week in John's Gospel, as Jesus stands upon the very precipice of his betrayal and crucifixion, he declares, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. John 13, 31. In fact, the word that Jesus often uses for his crucifixion in John's gospel is glory. In Greek, doxa, meaning a divine quality, this unspoken manifestation of God's splendor. So on the cross, rather than seeing his divinity nullified, we see it amplified. All of God's love, all of his justice, all of his mercy, all of his wisdom, indeed, all of his glory on full display. Do you want to know what God is really like? Do you want to know what God is really like? Do you find yourself with the Apostle Philip just saying, Lord, just just show us the Father. Do you want to know God's heart? There is no deeper or truer window into the heart of God than the cross of Christ. This morning we've been meditating upon the famous funeral text of John 14, and we began with a reflection upon Jesus as the bridegroom who goes and prepares a place for his bride, his people. He will come again and take us to himself that where he is we may be also. 
Next, we reflected on Jesus as the way. In a world of religious pluralism, Jesus remains the only true path to the Father. Finally, we saw how Jesus in his own person, indeed in his every action, in the least thing he does, in the greatest thing he does, reveals the Father. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? How can you say, show me the Father? In closing, I I want to put this before us as clearly and honestly as possible. According to Jesus, hell is real. And it's a real possibility for every human being. But also, according to Jesus, in his father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would he have told us that he goes and prepares a place for us? And if he goes and prepares a place for us, he will come again and take us to himself. When I proposed to Carissa, I I played this song I wrote for her on guitar, and I, I went down on one knee in the midst of some of our dearest friends. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior goes down on one knee. And he makes an eternal proposal of love, of life, of salvation. And most of you here this morning have said yes to that proposal. By faith, by baptism, day by day by following him. If you haven't, I urge you to do so. Even right now, say yes to Jesus in the quiet of your heart and tell your buddy after service that you did it. On the other hand, all of us know people, all of us know people, family, friends, neighbors, even enemies who have never said yes to Jesus. Perhaps they don't even know that heaven has proposed to them. And what a beautiful message of love we have to share with all of them. It's a message of love incarnate. Of a love that so loved them that he bore the cross to win their hand. Amen? Amen.